On today's episode, I make the pitch for Stargate Atlantis, the polarizing second installment of the Stargate TV franchise. Craig learns about Aquaman's nerdy past, and we share some practical life advice from one Mr. Wesley Snipes. All that and more on Uncharted Space. Craig. Josh. I'm really excited to do a podcast about science fiction with you, man. I'm very excited that you asked me to. Each week, we're going to pick a different sci-fi franchise or property, and we're going to talk about it. It could be a TV show or a movie or a book, but it's got to have special meaning to at least one of us. And so sometimes only one of us will have seen it, in which case it's up to that person to convince the other and the folks at home why they might want to jump into that world. And what are we talking about today, Josh? Ooh, we are talking about a very special television series for me, and that is the great sequel to Stargate SG-1, Stargate Atlantis. And you have seen every episode of Stargate Atlantis. I have seen every episode of Stargate Atlantis. Wow. Um, I have seen no episodes of Stargate Atlantis. Yeah. I've seen a poster with Bo Bridges. (laughs) Who's barely on the show, but uh, he's he's lent his face to promoting it. That's the important thing. Before we jump into the show, Josh, I want to jump back to the year 1990-something, when the great filmmakers Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin came out with the movie Stargate, which of course spawned all of these shows. And I'm just curious, Josh, how old were you when you saw it, thereabouts, and and what sticks with you about the movie? You know, I'm not totally sure. I may have seen it in the theater, but I definitely remember seeing it on video as a teenager. And honestly, I found it kind of forgettable. Oh, heresy. I know. It just seemed like a, a, a sort of generic, cheesy sci-fi 90s movie to me. I mean, I like the premise, and I found uh, Spader amusing as Daniel Jackson. So the door to heaven is Stargate. I've, I've come to appreciate the movie as like the genesis of the Stargate franchise, and I think it has its place in there. And I've rewatched it as an adult and enjoyed it quite a bit more. So... Stargate Atlantis airs in the middle of SG-1's run or after it's over? Towards the end, but definitely during. It overlapped for several years. I don't think it was intended to. I think they were going to end SG-1 and move into Atlantis, but I think SG-1 was so popular that they just kept making it for several more seasons afterwards. So, Josh, for someone listening to this who wanted to jump into Stargate Atlantis, how much of the previous shows of SG-1 would they need to watch to be able to to dive in? So for people who haven't seen Atlantis, they figure out that they can dial the gate into a whole different galaxy. Sort of like the Delta Quadrant. It's it's a little Deep Space nine in that, yes. But they only can go one way. They can't come back. Oh, at least not initially. They have to like find a power source in order to dial it back, and they don't know if there's going to be one. So they all just jump through the gate, and they find themselves in this whole new galaxy in a city that was built by the ancients. That is kind of the the premise. And then they go around and do space G.I. Joe stuff in the new galaxy. And do they know at the outset that it's a one-way trip, or do they go through and then whoops, and then they can't get back? They suspect that they won't be able to go back without finding this power source MacGuffin called a zero point module, I think, 
Anyway, in answer to your question, I think if you hadn't seen the movie or a single episode of SG-1, I think you'd be just fine. I think the pilot gives you enough exposition and world building for you to know what you need to know about the universe. I do think if you'd seen the original film, but not SG-1, or maybe you'd seen like a couple of episodes of SG-1, you might be confused about how Atlantis exists in the same universe. The visual language of Atlantis is really different from its predecessors. I mean, SG-1 in the first few seasons uh, leaned really heavily into the ancient Egyptian thing from the film with, you know, the flying pyramids and the bad guys with snake heads. But none of that is present in Atlantis at all. It's not recognizable as existing in the same universe, except that they walk through the glowy ring thing. Do they borrow from Greek uh, civilization? Well, I mean, the visuals are very like stained glass. Like, I I mean, it almost feels a little Catholic. Oh. But I actually really love the design aesthetic of Atlantis. It's it's a beautiful show. The sets are beautiful. There's all this stained glass and there's depth and multi, multiple levels and everything's light, like well lit, which is like a really nice contrast from the sort of bunkery appearance of the of the home base in SG-1 in the movie, um, which is all just very grimy and dark and concrete, which is cool too, but this is like a nice change of pace from that. So SG-1 followed very much, at least in the first several seasons, in the style of the original series of Star Trek where Alien of the Week, you go to a new planet, you encounter somebody, you do something and you go home. What is the format of Atlantis? It is similar they definitely have some like season long arcs or series long arcs that are always present, but a lot of the episodes do stand alone in that Star Trek way of beam down, solve the problem, beam up and everything resets. So SG-1 had a huge following by the time Atlantis came around. How much of the show is about fan service to that existing set of TV watchers and Did they do anything to challenge or subvert the expectations of those existing fans? I don't know that I'd call it fan service, but they definitely tried to duplicate some of the things that made SG-1 so appealing to the fans. I think especially in terms of the dialogue. SG-1 was famous for the constant banter between the four leads. Even in like the worst situations, they were bickering and bantering. And especially Richard Dean Anderson, with his, he had this very like, sarcastic and self-deprecating way of delivering all of his lines. I mean, he wisecracked all the time. And they definitely tried to write Atlantis the same way, especially between the Joe Flanagan character, Shepard, and the uh, David Hewlett character, who's McKay. He shot me. They're both fine. You shot me. Yes, Rodney, I shot you, and I said I was sorry. You shot me too. I'm sorry for shooting everyone. Just... Daedalus will be here in a little while. Just get some rest. I do think the inclusion of McKay in the show was a bit of fan service because he was a like this infamous guest character from a couple of episodes of SG-1. And I think the fans loved him so much that, I mean, maybe hated him so much that uh, they you know, he ended up second or third on the Atlantis call sheet. Is like, he an SG commando or? No, he's a civilian scientist ah. and an insufferable one at that. They brought him in as a foil to Samantha Carter in a season of SG-1, and he was like super smarmy and misogynistic. And this argument is a waste of time because the Pentagon is going to order Hammond to resume operations in what, like 16 hours? That's how they came up with the 48-hour deadline, isn't it? You told them Teal'c would already be dead. That's why it's called a deadline. God, you're a jerk. I wish I didn't find you so attractive. I always had a real weakness for 
dumb blondes. Go suck a lemon. They would not do it this way now because she ended up like kind of liking him at the end. He like negged her, mm. as they say. But then they brought him back for another episode and she realized she still hated him. But I think people loved him so much that they brought him back for Atlantis. So help me understand a little bit more. So they, they go over there and they're, are they stuck the whole time? Or like how early into the first season are they able to go back to Earth? Or do they ever go back to Earth? Well, do you want spoilers, Craig? Light spoilers. At times during the run, they figure out how to go back to Earth. And then eventually, with the help of uh, some god aliens, uh, they build a spaceship that can go back and forth between the two galaxies over the course of several weeks. So they've got a little commuter vessel. Ah. So yeah, they do go back to Earth fairly often in the later seasons. Now in the movie, of course, they are positing that aliens built the pyramids and that they're, you know, all of these ancient civilizations carry from them. I'm guessing that there's some tie over into the lost city of Atlantis. Help, help me explain how much of that they know at the beginning and how much is a secret that we pick up as we go through. The idea of the existence of a lost city of Atlantis shows up in one of the sort of middle seasons of SG-1, and that becomes like an ongoing concern. And they tie it to you know, historical or mythological figures that were actually aliens in the same way that you're describing with the the pyramid guys. They determined that there was an ancient race of humans, the ancients, who were the ones that actually built the Stargates, that also built all these cities. Uh, and there were cryptic instructions on how to find Atlantis and all of these writings that Daniel Jackson found. And so they spend a bunch of time figuring that out. And then at the end of, I want to say season seven, the season finale is essentially a backdoor pilot for Stargate Atlantis, uh-huh. where they don't quite find Atlantis, but they get real warm. Okay. And you could watch that and then immediately watch the pilot of Stargate Atlantis and they'd flow right into each other. So what's the best mood to be in to sit down for an episode of Stargate Atlantis? I mean, Atlantis is a corny show like its predecessor, but it's a self-aware corny show. It leans into that corniness in a way that I find really delightful when I'm looking for something that doesn't require a lot of like emotional investment. Like Star Trek and other soft sci-fi, it's got heady episodes and morality plays and all of that. But I use the term G.I. Joe in space and I, I stand by that. These are contemporary American soldiers that walk through the Stargate onto alien planets carrying machine guns and act like they're Star Trek explorers, but it's really much more jingoistic than any Star Trek series that's ever been made. These premiered before the Iraq war was over, correct? Like we were still in the quagmire during the the run of this. Oh yeah. I mean, I didn't, Atlantis premiered in what, like 2004, something like that. Oh, the quagmire was just getting started. Yeah. We were really in the shit right then. So is there any commentary on that or is it more towards the side of Americans with machine guns are a good thing. I think the backstory to the lead guy, Colonel Shepard, was that he was a pilot that had been shot down in Iraq. But I think that really the only acknowledgement of the contemporary military situation comes in the backstory of a couple of the characters. They definitely don't talk about it except in like, uh, clunky metaphor, maybe. In SG-1, there's a whole element of 
to use the line from A Few Good Men, being the man on the wall <laughs> who are, you know, standing watch. Is there an element of that in Atlantis where part of the action has to do with keeping nefarious forces away from Earth or is it more towards just exploring? It starts by being about keeping nefarious forces away from Atlantis. Oh. And for the first couple of seasons, the city is more or less constantly under siege by the the big bad of that series, which is a alien species called the Wraith. Well, let's jump back then, because in my mind, never having seen it, I'm picturing that they go through the Stargate into like an abandoned city. But it sounds like, no, they're, they're going in and they're Atlanteans and they're doing stuff and they're like, hi, hello. No, there's nobody there. They take the city over. Nice. And they, they run it. it. They stake their claim. They plant their flag in it. So there are no ancients there? Largely no. Oh, secrets. Ancients hiding in the coveys. Yeah. Okay. So what are the science fiction technology elements that are introduced that are particularly intriguing in this show, particularly different than what might be in SG-1? They introduce the idea of stargates that are floating in space, like in, in orbit of a planet. Oh. And they have little shuttles that fly through the stargate. In terms of like its impact on the storytelling, that's got to be the best new tech because the shuttles can also fly around on the planets they go to. And that really helps fix the like small world problem that Stargate has where like everything important on the planet is right next to the gate because the cast has to walk to it. Sure. So it makes the planets feel more planety and less like a film set. And so they can fly around the planet. They can fly around the space around the planet. And then the ships like dock in the city. Now, my understanding of this show is that it was all underwater because Atlantis sank into the sea, and I just assumed that it was an underwater city. But is that not the case? Is there no underwater adventures in this story? It's underwater when they get there. Oh. But their arrival... Hang on. Are we swearing on this show? Uh, fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> the city's underwater when they get there, but their arrival totally fucks up the shielding that surrounds the city to protect it underwater, and so they have no choice but to surface it. And later they find out why it had been submerged, what they were protecting it from. But for the most of the run of the show, the city is sitting on the surface of the ocean. But in terms of the like underwater sci-fi elements, I think that there are a couple of like explore a haunted sunken ship they found. Oh. Oh, and there's one like memorably sleazy episode where Rodney McKay is stuck on a shuttle underwater and he like uh, conjures up a fantasy version of Samantha Carter in her underwear. Oh. There's this underlying Rodney McKay has always been secretly or not so secretly in love with Samantha Carter. And so in order to make it through this harrowing situation in which he finds himself alone and trapped underwater, uh, he conjures this very real seeming partially nude Samantha Carter. Oh. It's very sleazy it must have been in the middle of Battlestar Galactica they're they're doing their take on the head six I think this was a little before that I think if anything the comp would be like Star Trek Enterprise where they did Star Trek stuff but with boobs oh yeah well what is the ethos on the show in terms of the prime directive to put it in Star Trek language do they feel any obligation to not interfere with cultures or do they feel the obligation to interfere as much as possible they put a character in the main cast who's like on the team who's like a, an indigenous person of one of the planets in that galaxy who acts as the sort of like conscience of the 
rest of the team that really want to just go fuck everything up. Aha. Uh-huh. They dealt with this a bit in SG-1 where there was friction between elements of the government that wanted to exploit the planets that they went to for weapons and technology and others that thought that that was like an inappropriate use of the Stargates. And I think to a certain extent that friction continued into Atlantis, but I don't think it was a main focus of the show. I'm going to paint for you the show that I'm picturing from everything you've described to me. I'm picturing a show that is uh, fun for the most part, where there are some dramatic situations, but we never feel in too much peril for the characters and where one day we're going to want Bo Bridges to come in and and be like a, a vuncular father figure. Is that, uh, have, have I pictured the show properly or am I missing some giant essence of it? I mean, I think the giant essence of it that you're missing is the appearance in the second season of a young man named Jason Momoa who joins the main cast for the rest of the show and uh, is exactly who you would imagine Jason Momoa playing on a science fiction show. Oh, we fought back. The battle lasted days. And when you finally surrendered, what did the right do then? We didn't surrender. We fought until every last one of us was either dead or captured. This angry, brutish, huge man who is fiercely loyal and can't control his emotions. So, Josh, you really buried the lead there. So so the, the lesson for our listeners is that if you're interested in a zany, fun, Star Trek light type show or just want to watch Jason Momoa without a shirt on, this is a show for you. There is a lot of shirtless Jason Momoa. If you're less into that and more into sci-fi nostalgia feelings, another very appealing character would be this Woolsey character played by Robert Picardo. As you know, one of the changes I made around here is to require every team member to file mission reports as opposed to only team leaders and science officers. Really? I didn't, I didn't know that. I announced it my fourth day here at an away team orientation meeting detailing changes to mission protocol. Was I there? Yes, it was mandatory. Because I, I don't Come on, I saw you there. It's kind of hard to miss you. Robert Picardo's on the show? Well, so the Woolsey character originated on SG-1 as sort of a villain. But then at some point during the run of Atlantis, he like takes over the secret committee that oversees the Stargate program. And so then he becomes a thorn in their side as well. They do give him sort of a redemption arc, uh, although it's not that believable because he's just such a dick all the time. One of the big problems with Stargate Atlantis, I mean, I guess I'm trying, this is not a good job of pitching it to you because I'm talking about a problem with it. Hey, I'm getting more and more intrigued. This show suffered from really heavy handed studio intervention with the cast. They would fire people and hire new people all the time. And it made it really tough to get invested in the character relationships. Um, I mean, they basically retooled half the cast every season. And so like suddenly Sam Carter's there and she's the boss of the Atlantis and then she's out and like now uh, Robert Picardo is the boss of Atlantis for some reason. And so it's like a little bit herky-jerky in, t- in terms of casting and the individual performances of all of those actors was chef's kiss. The two words that you've said that make me most interested to see it, and you've said a lot of things that really make me interested to see, but the two words that really have me hooked 
or Robert Picardo. Well, there you go. I mean, you could just start at season three. Okay, so what I do is I get a cardboard cutout of Robert Picardo, put it next to the TV for the first two seasons, and then I can take it down for season three. He's just there to remind me to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. He's on the horizon. You don't even get Momoa until season two. They brought him in to replace, like, one of the most extremely boring characters ever. Oh. Uh. Whose name I don't even remember. No. He was, like, the random fourth guy on the team. And when do we get Bo Bridges and why? I have to tell you, Craig, I don't remember Bo Bridges' participation in Atlantis. I definitely remember his participation in SG-1 because uh, he played General Landry. That sounds right. Landry, who um, replaced General Hammond, the the Don Davis character, the 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 rotund, bald Texan general. Bald and in charge, yes. You, you don't need to call him rotund. He's, he's you know, he's, he's, he's properly proportioned for a man of his height. Yeah, fair enough. Um, he's a, a great character. One of the best sort of like uh, off-camera leaders. May he rest in peace. Yeah, R.I.P. Don Davis. Um, but Bo, they brought in Bo Bridges to replace him, and he was the, the boss for the last few seasons of the show. But I don't remember him being on Atlantis, except maybe like in a couple of they did a couple of crossover episodes before SG One ended, where the SG One crew got on the shuttle spaceship and went to Atlantis and did Stargate adventures there. My only viewing of what I thought was Stargate Atlantis, maybe it wasn't, was an episode I saw like five minutes of it where there's Bow Bridges. And there's some other attractive young man, and they're underwater, which is why I thought the show was underwater. And there's some element of peril where they can't get out from being underwater. They're they're stuck there. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Although the way I remember it, it was Richard Dean Anderson that was stuck underwater and Nabo Bridges. It can't have been Richard Dean Anderson, though, because he could have MacGyvered a way out of that. I mean, I think he does. Oh. Spoiler alert. Okay. Well, final question, Josh, is did you ever play the video game Indiana Jones... And the fate of Atlantis. I did not. Well, no follow-up questions. Can I ask you a question, Craig? Sure. So we've been talking about the Stargate franchise, which is about how the pyramids and a lot of other things on Earth were built by aliens or previous evolutions of humans. And it really, really leans hard into this, like, this, this ancient aliens trope that's everywhere in science fiction. Yes. Do you have a favorite science fiction movie or show or book that relies on that trope? Ooh, good question. Ancient tropes. I can do this. I can do this, Josh. I'm going to go with Blade. <laughs> <laughs> Some motherfuckers never learn not to ice skate uphill. Well, Craig, it's been... A delight uh, pitching Stargate Atlantis, the incredible sequel to the incredible Stargate SG-1, itself the sequel to a movie that I can't take back what I said about, but... I will continue to adore. There you go. See you next time on whatever we're calling this show. Some motherfuckers never (laughs) learn how to skate uphill. (laughs) Do you remember there was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where they decided they were just going to give the backstory for why humanoid life in the galaxy exists yes vaguely that there was like um they seeded the earth right like there was a species that looked vaguely like the gray alien with the big eyes and they dropped here they actually looked like the changeling